potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show featuring uh, not one but two fascinating guests today uh, who are both helping to create uh, a better tomorrow in a very unique area. And as subscribers to our show know, we spend a lot of time uh, on the theme of healthy aging. Uh, and it is related to this theme that we're going to segue into an area that we have not yet touched on on the show. Um, but as a little background, longer-term correctional facilities, of which here in the United States we have around 2,000, uh, are currently not geared uh, to accommodate the needs of the growing aging population. Uh, in this population, we see the natural slowdown of, of physical mobility, cognitive processes, and aging prisoners uh, are prone to predation, humiliation, and major central nervous system degenerative disorders, such as early onset dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. And it's very difficult uh, to detect in this population, uh, which is also accompanied by other degenerative diseases, but also mental illnesses, maladaptive social behaviors, and so forth. The Gold Coat Program, which is based at California Men's Colony State Prison in San Luis Obispo, consists of a group of healthy inmates that are specifically trained to care for those with dementia and other cognitive impairments. And the experiences of these Gold Coat workers, which they're designated for because of the gold smocks they wear, reveal not just a really fascinating model of care and working rehabilitation program, but also a really true model of reform that ultimately can provide skills for meaningful employment, ultimately like teaching to care for these people that cannot care for themselves. As mentioned, we have two wonderful guests today. First, we're joined by Aileen Hongo, who is a geriatric social worker. She received her master's degree in gerontology and social work from the University of Southern California. She came across the Gold Coats program in her studies, and she continues to research uh, the plight of escalating aging prison populations and correctional facilities, unsuitable to accommodate the natural decline of physical mobility and cognitive processes of older adults. She also currently works as a life skills instructor in county jails. We're also joined today by Barry Hughes. Uh, originally from LA, Barry served as a gold coat for five years and a hospice caregiver from 2004 into release from prison in 2012. He currently works as a health technician focusing on peer, as his peer specialist in grief support for the Department of Mental Health in the Veterans Administration. A lot of really interesting topics we're going to be getting into today. And aside from all that, of course, both Aileen and Barry are authors uh, of a book entitled Gold Coats, The Exceptional Standard of Care, A Collaborative Guide to Caring for the Cognitively Impaired Behind Bars, available on Amazon and other uh, book resources. Um, Barry, Aileen, thank you so much for both taking time out of your schedule to come on the show today. 
Thank you so much, Ira. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. It's really uh, great having both of you. Um, as mentioned, I'd like to start out by really handing the floor to both of you for a little bit each, just to talk about yourselves. If you could take a little time, as we typically do on the show, to introduce yourself, just talk everything about from uh, where you grew up, a little bit of your background story, and a little bit of the events that led you, uh, from both your perspectives, into learning, first and foremost, about the Gold Coats program. Why don't we ladies first? <laughs> Thanks, Absolutely. Gary. Okay, uh, well, my name is Eileen Hongo and I'm a native of Los Angeles, born and raised here in LA. And I grew up basically with great grandmother and grandmother in the household, right? And my mom was a single mom. So I was always around older people. And so I have a fondness for the elderly. Um, as I grew up, went to school, um, I really, didn't know what I wanted to do. And to make a long story short, I went back to school late in life. I was probably in my late 40s, um, divorced. I had two little kids. I was like, what am I going to do? So I went back to school and I thought I'm going to open my own adult daycare center. I love the elderly. So I went to school, got my master's in gerontology. And in the course of that, we had an assignment to go to either, it was a public facility, right? So either a hospital a nursing home or a prison. So I asked my professor, I'm like, really a prison? And she said, yeah, if you could get in. So I emailed, you know, 34 wardens, didn't get a reply. And finally an ombudsman contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to the women's prison over there in Chino if you wanna go. And so I was like, oh my God, I do have to go because I have to do this paper. So in my mind, it was just getting the paper done. So <clears throat> I met her at the California Institution for Women in Chino, California. And I walked in and they were having a meeting with the Golden Girls. And I'm like, who are the Golden Girls? And they're women over 55 years of age and is a support group. And they kind of flocked to me. And you know, some of them had their glasses taped up. Some of them, you know, they were showing me their dentures were broken. And they're like, can you help us? Can you help us? And I was like, oh my God, what the heck is going on here? And that changed the course of my life. Um, I talked to my professor, you know, I, I finished my paper and she suggested, why don't you go and try to do some healthy aging workshops? And so I was like, wow. So, you know, getting into one prison kind of opened the door for me to get into the other prisons. And so I started, um, facilitating healthy aging workshops based on the difficult environment, right? It's not like they can go and, you know, um, go to a dentist right away or, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, get vitamins right away. So we, you know, we talked about um, safety, right? A lot of times the elderly have to wait in long lines, even in the hot heat, or they may not be able to hear some warnings or some, you know, instructions by the guards. So all these, um, you know, adult, we call it daily activities of living, make it a little bit difficult in a harsh environment. Um, then I started to hear about a hospice and um, this Gold Coat program with dementia at the California Men's Colony. So I contacted um, the prison in, in um, San Luis Obispo. And my first day, I did a workshop with the Gold Coats. And there were a few hospice giver, caregivers at the time also. And I was fascinated that I was thinking hospice caregivers in a prison. And, you know, we really never think about people dying in prison. And many of them don't have a place to go. Many of them have families that have either 
passed away or really don't, you know, are not able to care for them. And so they end up dying in prison. So there is a hospice in um, CMC, California Men's Colony. Um, there's also one in Vacaville, California. And unfortunately, the women's prisons do not have a licensed you know, hospice. Um, so there I met the Gold Coats and I was just you know, fascinated. As I said, it was amazing, the care. I mean, these guys were changing diapers. They're cleaning up after. And it's hard enough to care for a family member, let alone a total stranger. Yep. You know, it's just amazing. So then I received an email that, um, you know, there's a lot about contacting some of the Gold Coats who were out. And I didn't even think about that. So I, <clears throat> excuse me, a friend of mine, a colleague, actually um, knew a Gold Coat. And so I contacted him, which led me to meeting the first three gentlemen. One was which was Barry. <laughs> and we talked. And the skill, the skill levels that these guys were talking about, right? I mean, they're, they knew about sundowners. They knew, I was like amazed. They knew so much about Alzheimer's um, and the compassion um, that they were showing. And so I told them, you know, you guys, you guys need to write a book. You guys need to have a guidebook, mm -hmm. a legacy, because people inside many of the prisons really are struggling with the aging, right? They're the most costly population. Um, and so there's another gentleman, um, Samuel Law, who was a, an original Gold Coat. He... I met with him and I met with all of all of there was about five, six of us um, together. And he had this huge notebook. And so it had schedules, it had like timers of like, you know, what to do. And so my fear was, okay, this is from the prison. So I didn't want to get into <laughs> trouble with publishing something, right? Yeah. And he goes, oh no, these are mine. I said, what? He goes, yeah, we, we, we put this together ourselves. And so I checked with um, my contact at, at the prison. She said, yeah, yeah, they, they actually put this program together themselves. They had some help, of course, but um, they had some training, I believe, with Alzheimer's. I think Barry would probably uh, go into that a little bit more. Okay. But they were a peer-created program. And so it, it's still going on. I believe now, um, you know, it's really hard with COVID. I haven't been able to visit. But there are other prisons who are using the, um, the idea of the Gold Coats. They may be helping, you know, with wheelchairs, helping with meals. Um, so it's a program. And ideally what, you know, our vision, one of our visions was actually having a place where the guys like Barry um, and Steve and, and Terrence, who have the skills coming out, could care for those who don't have a place to go right, because compassionate release, right, so men who are dying in prison, men and women who are dying mm -hmm. in prison, will have a place to go, because they are not, they cannot parole if they don't have a place to go medically, right, right. The, the, the correctional, um, corrections is not going to put them in the street, so they're going to end up dying in prison, so if they have a place to go, mm -hmm. um, and these guys can, you know, really, um, they have the skills, they can run their own homes, and I believe it was Barry or one of I'm one of you guys. Have, I still remember said, if they don't want to take care of them, we'll do it. We'll take care of our own. And that really struck me. So that's kind of where we are today. Excellent. And Barry and these guys are like family to me. Outstanding, outstanding. Barry, please. Yes, well, my name is Barry Hughes. Uh, 
for your audience. Um, I'm a person that was born at Queen of Angels Hospital in Los Angeles. Um, I was reared in uh, predominantly all African-American community. Then my mother uh, moved over to a beach community. Uh, she thought I would have greater opportunities. And uh, so as a mom, she just only wants the best for her, her child. Um, because of that, that landed me in schools predominantly on the west side. So I was able to see um, a, a variety of things as a child and, and have a variety of experiences. So there was a lot of things that go on in our society today that I was forced to learn um, during my adolescence. Um, you know, people can be very loving and protective and, and in, within the same family, uh, people can really be, uh, have a lot of lack of understanding and a lot of and lack of knowledge. And I lived in a household that my mom always instilled in me um, an ability to seek information. So, you know, playing chess, going to the library, excelling there was... Um, has a lot to do with, I guess, my, my foundation today, so that when I hear something that makes sense, that inspires, that, uh, uh, that is creative, um, it, it, when I notice that level of familiarity, then it causes me to act. Um, so I, I can tell you that I'm trying to see how to skip this along. When I was in high school, I'll go there. When I was in high school, uh, I joined the military. Uh, soon after graduating. I did that uh, because I wanted to see the world uh, because of how it was for me growing up as a child, you know, having all these experiences playing tennis, surfing, uh, basketball. I was very athletic. I ended up being one of the uh, third fastest guys in California. Uh, had I um, had the backing of, you know, a family or uh, someone that had the resources to connect me to people, because at Palisades um, High School, it's almost like you had to be come from an affluent family to, right. to really be back. You know what I mean? So I wasn't a Jay Schrader. You know, he's one of the guys who went to the Raiders. Uh, you know, he used to throw the ball to me and he threw it to me the same way he, he threw it to people uh, in, in the NFL, mm -hmm. high or, or, or low. And um, so, but, you know, all joking aside, um, these experiences I had um, just – really assisted me while in the military and well as when I got out. Um, the thing is, is that I just didn't know as a person who, as you know, this program development uh, while being in car in, during incarceration, mm -hmm. uh, my experience in getting there uh, was one that was uh, very difficult and lonely um, in that Whenever you do something wrong, in this case, someone lost their life by my leave. Um, you know, I couldn't blame it on Ronald Reagan. I couldn't blame it on Oliver North. I couldn't blame it on the Constantinistas. You know, all this information that we have now. All I knew as a youngster is that um, there was a way to uh, financially change my circumstances. And I didn't realize at that time in the moment that doing so was causing grandmothers to become mothers again. And uh, so skipping to when I was incarcerated, that level of guilt, uh, that level of clarity 
and knowing how much you can affect someone's life, the things you're doing, um, that it caused me to where when people like Eileen came into these institutions and things like that, sharing of their knowledge, uh, trying to uh, create vehicles in which a person can uh, um, change their way of thinking, change their life, renew their minds. Um, I hopped on that opportunity because that was something that was familiar to me, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Uh, so um, skipping to some things I know you're probably gonna ask um, later. Um, I went through a very arduous uh, uh, process in which um, uh, it was through um, Hospice of San Luis Obispo that, because um, really before I, in order for me to become a Gold Code, I was a hospice caregiver. Okay. Um, as you know, uh, prison, uh, or maybe your audience does not know, prison is just a small microcosm of our society. The same things go on there. Believe me, the same things go on there. You got people that get arrested again. You have people that have children. Yeah, you have fathers, you have mothers, uh, you have people that are teachers. In my case, uh, I met a woman um, who was a great influence in my life and that she came into those institutions uh, from the VA uh, and she was a forensic psychologist. She shared things like Marcus uh, Aurelius, Norman Vincent Peale, Napoleon Hill. Uh, plus, I was an advent reader myself. So people like James Allen, Thomas Paine, who wrote The Age of Reason. Uh, and, and then, of course, we had those, those things that, that we're rooted in, uh, that, that, that our family gives us with, which are whether you're uh, a Methodist or you're Muslim, um, that these, these things, that they, they seem to... Um, they're connected mm -hmm. and they're connected. And I'd say the common thread is knowledge. And it was knowledge that really just saved my life. It was knowledge that uh, created a vehicle for me to be an undercarriage, uh, a mode of transportation for others who could not do it for themselves. And so it was with that that um, becoming Gokul was very easy uh, for me. I did not know that I would be able to sit bedside uh, with any individual. I did not know that I would possess what it takes to uh, exercise the things I've learned, everything from aromatherapy to coma therapy. Um, I didn't realize how poetry can um assuage and bring out the best in someone so that they have a greater more better experience as they um go from uh, um this life to another um so in short uh i will say that all these different experiences have prepared me so that when i was free um I became, as you said, a health technician, but now um, I'm a counselor for what's called MICM, Mental Health Intensive Case Management, Veterans okay. Administration, um, in which we work with schizoaffective, uh, bipolar, uh, men and women who have hallucinations, who've uh, undergone such traumas to where, and, and, and then with some, uh, in order to be able to um, kind of deal with that trauma, uh, found themselves using uh, narcotics or mm -hmm. drugs. And 
So these things were also associated with speeding up or maybe uh, helping these diagnoses to come about, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I helped them to be able to live with their diagnosis. I helped them to be able to live with their fears, uh, with their indecisions, with their doubts, so that as I share my experience, as I um, be an example for them, uh, we have a mission statement that's called I Care. Mm -hmm. And it means really uh, the I stands for integrity. And they know my integrity by the C, which is my commitment to them. And they're able to see my commitment by the way I advocate for them. And through those things, we gain the R, which is the respect. And in the end, this is how we derive at excellence. And this is, I carry that with me. That's why I share that with you now, because it's been uh, these experiences, this level of knowledge, this connection that has really... Um, assisted me in being a person that truly, uh, I believe when I'm with uh, someone who's transitioning from this life to the next, when I'm with someone who has a diagnosis that needs some support and figuring out that, that can, that will appreciate a, a, um, a respectful prompting or redirecting or mirroring and reflecting uh, something they've said so they know I've listened to hear and not to respond. When I use these tools, um, it, it it creates a better experience for not only myself, but for the person I'm trying to help. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's fascinating. I, I really, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Um, I re- really uh, amazing that, you know, how far you've come and, and, and the experiences you've had uh, to date. Um, you know, building on that a little bit, I'm mean, shifting back to Aileen for a moment now, because, you know, uh, Aileen Barry just took us on uh, this fascinating <laughs> journey. And, and, you know, uh, obviously, um, we, I think about, you know, I read about the gold coats and I think about dementia, but obviously yeah. Barry, Barry just took us through everything from, from dementia to uh, terminal illness to obviously end of life care, uh, re- which really shows the um, uh, sort of the, the broad perspective here. Uh, and then he brought in the, the other angle, of course, is that, you know, this is um, everything he learned within this, originally in the microcosm of the correctional facility. Can you, Aileen, as a gerontologist, talk to us a little bit about, uh, based on your experiences and everything that you've seen out, out of the correctional system, um, what are some of the unique things that you did see in the correctional system, whether it came to early onset dementia, some of these other chronic degenerative diseases, Die, death and dying that are unique to the uh, incarceration system. I think, you know, Barry had a good point. It is a microcosm in a sense, but also here outside, we tend to, you know, we think we're connected, but there's a different connection inside when somebody is dying or um, let's move back a little, maybe early onset Alzheimer's, right? Okay. A little bit confused going someplace um, and some of the stories these gold coats have told me, like, you know, if somebody is confused and they get something from the commissary, they get a box from the commissary, mm-hmm. they take it to their home and someone else will come and take that box, maybe steal that box or gold coat will go in there and say, excuse me, right? That is not your box. And they will protect the sense of compassion of protecting. And I don't think we see that out here for a total stranger. Yeah. Um, whereas 
they are very special in the sense that they will risk a reputation, so to speak, right, of being considered, oh, you know, you're helping them, you're, you know, they will stand up to, you know, adversaries where out here we might say, that's none of my business, that's, you know, so I think that level of compassion, level of caring in a, in a correctional setting is higher in that mm-hmm. sense, which is weird, right? It's kind of an oxymoron um, that, you know, or somebody has soiled themselves, right. right? What would happen to somebody who soiled themselves out here, right? People would ridicule, leave them, you know, maybe we'll have one or two that might help, but, and I'm talking specifically with the gold coats, will not think twice about helping somebody clean up mm-hmm. or helping somebody, you know, Maybe not in the other part of the prison. I'm just talking about this specific program um, that they are strong enough, have the, I don't call it, integrity, mm-hmm. respect, um, and really help the patients and the clients um, have dignity. And I don't think we have that much outside. I think that's a huge difference. May I interject? Uh, at sure. Please. Uh, I would like to say um, to your audience that um, we know each other by our deeds and conduct. When, and that's no matter where you go, it doesn't mm-hmm. change. Uh, when incarcerated, there are people there that are connected because of where they grew up, because of maybe how they, their socialization, what group they are acquainted with, protected by. Um, and so when those different factions see you helping someone that they know, assisting someone that you know, um, you begin to gain a reputation. And so those people that are uh, involved in the politics of these different institutions, whether they be staff or inmate, um, they are quick to recognize who is who, just like we do at work. Mm -hmm. We know who puts in the extra time, we know who is there sincerely, and we know who's there for a paycheck. And it's our deeds and conduct that was our breastplate of righteousness, if that makes any sense as a pastor, right? That um, people knew that we were there sincerely giving of our time because we believed in the power of what we were doing. And we saw how that really added some calm to the overall environment where people could look and see, um, have a moment of clarity through an experience and know that there's still a reason uh, to go on. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. To Absolutely. be a better man or woman. Absolutely. Um, Barry, taking your experience, obviously, Aileen, you know, you tag team in here any way you want. And please take your time with this. I, you know, I spent some time going through uh, the book and, you know, I, was, I spent a lot of time on the section ADL, Activities of Daily Living, which sort of highlights the training, uh, really extensive training on, on these basic self-care activities, everything from eating to, Barry, as you were saying, bathing, toileting, and so forth. Um, you know, i I'm a, I'm a father. I, I, I've had bathing and toileting experiences with my young children. Never had to be involved with it with uh, adults and, and obviously never with strangers. Uh, talk a little bit about your experiences. Um, you know, obviously this was new for you. Um, and not just your experiences, but also because you're training others. Um, 
you know, what this is all like, because this is really, once again, something that none of us, for the most part, in our, well, we have dementia in our families and so forth, um, not always have this sort of this continuum that we need to learn like you did. Please talk for a while about this, if you would. And Aileen, jump in as well. I want everyone to. Well, you have to understand that this is, instead of being an, an this is an environment that's really uh, an incarcerated environment, a jailed environment, right? Where there's bars and things like that. Um, but because of the coat that we wore, because of what the arduous process that it took to go through it. In other words, I must tell you that we had to be evaluated by social workers, by uh, psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, these are the people that were like uh, the interviewers. Yep. And the reason why is because we, we wanted to, they wanted to be sure to protect the integrity of the process because you're dealing with a very vulnerable population. And so I, I just want your audience just to know that they just didn't just randomly pick people for this program. Sure. Um, they had to make sure that they had someone with the right temperament. They had to make sure that there was someone that was in it because they understood uh, the various different circumstances that would they might be involved in as opposed to using it as a stepping stool for maybe getting out of prison, right? right. Um, and, and so because those are different priorities, right? Sure. But to your question exactly, um, while in that environment, um, first thing you must learn, just like um, in a hospital, if someone's falling, you, you can't protect someone from falling. When they're falling, you, you have to let them fall. Yeah. Otherwise you can get hurt yourself, right? So uh, while in that process, you can have people because of their diagnosis, they may spit on you, they may call you a name, they may do things to agitate you because of something that, a hallucination that they're having, uh, a, something because there's a breakdown in their medication, uh, something wasn't delivered on time, or we're finding out that they were just skipped over or missed. And this is why um, they've uh, having a decline uh, in their ability to, to socialize with others. Um, well, when, when you, one's going through those experiences, you can't act out, right? You, you, you have to take it. Um, so uh, I've dealt with incontinence. I've dealt with people who've, uh, and I'm not saying this is an everyday thing. I'm just telling you just factual sure. things. There, sure. there are experiences that I've uh, gone through where people have uh, thrown feces against the wall. And, you know, those things have to be cleaned up, right? Somebody has to clean them up. And we clean that up. We also, um, but every experience wasn't like like that. Some experiences were, uh, because of our knowledge uh, in, in hospice and in the medical field, the training, stuff like that, when we saw a reoccurring urination, uh, we, we noticed, hey, maybe there's something going on. Maybe this person is diabetic and, and, and doesn't know, right? So um, we find ways to escort them uh, to talk about this uh, during our morning huddles to get, uh, because we have briefings before we even start our, our day. And, and please excuse me if I seem like I'm jumping around, but as I'm talking, I'm reminded of all the things. See, I could talk for an hour on just one specific subject, and I know we have a little amount of time to hit it all. And I'm one of those people, just so your audience knows, I always try to hit home runs. That's fine. Sports analogy. But I know that just getting someone to first and second base, that's good, too. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to remind myself of that as I'm speaking. Um, but 
you know, in, in this environment, um, we, we, we see a lot of things and we have to, in real time, find ways to, uh, like if we're, if I'm a person that's responsible for showering at that time, monitor showering, uh, observing behavior, uh, being able to keep things moving because we might have a hundred people that need to be bathed, right? So we have a system, as you've seen in the book, in which um, we, we have people positioned in various different uh, places where we can not only observe them, but we can take the time with those who are like suffering for dementia. Like, for example, my greatest number on a caseload would be 11. Out of the 11 people, maybe three or four of them would have certain levels of dementia mm -hmm. uh, or Alzheimer's. And, and just so your, your, your audience understands dementia, if you look at it like an umbrella, and then under that, you would have Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. drug induced, right? So all these different things that uh, support why a person is, has that memory loss in the first place. And um, I must say that it was oftentimes easier for those that didn't have knowledge that had to observe, whether they're a correctional officer or just another person doing time, when they knew that or come to learn that maybe this is why a person was even incarcerated in the first place, that someone might have missed that, that, oh, this person has an issue. They yep. think something violent is getting ready to happen to them, and they're responding in the manner they do. So they, they saw something that wasn't there. It wasn't true, but they believed it, you know? And so um, it was a lot easier uh, to lower your wing, if you will, mm -hmm. to, to uh, assist people uh, in this type of uh, situation. Excellent. I, re I recall a story, I don't think Barry, if you remember, you told me, and it, it still stuck in my head. There was sometimes the Gold Coast would escort them to breakfast, right? The, the men with um, Alzheimer's, dementia. And one gentleman, just wanted to go to the turnstile. They had a turnstile to go in for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And I remember Barry said, this, this gentleman just wanted to just go there. And so they stood, he stood up, he took them, he took him to the turnstile and he was waiting for his mother. He wanted to see his mother. Mm -hmm. But just the one minute or 30 seconds it took to go to the turnstile and you know, Barry had told him, see your mom's not coming today, she'll be coming tomorrow. So we're mm -hmm. gonna have breakfast. And then we're going to shower, so you'll be nice and clean. And he's like, okay. So just putting him in that mindset that, oh, okay. Right. He may not realize that, but just for that moment, a little compassion. And he's a little bit calmer, right? Waiting for his mom. She'll be coming tomorrow. And then very soon was able to take him to the shower. And the rest of the day, he was calm. So it's amazing, you know, how the empathy that they, you know, that they really show to um, their clients. Wonderful. That's wonderful. And, you know, the AV, um, you know, later on in the book, um, there, there are several sections um, uh, on sort of greatest moments and, and most challenging moments. And there's, you know, a bunch of really touching stories in here. Obviously, it doesn't say which, uh, which Gold Coast responsible for here each, but everything from, you know, thank you for being here with me while I die. Thank you for some being someone that will still touch me and so forth. Um, Barry, uh, talk just a little bit, if you would, tell us a couple of stories. Uh, it could be ones, you're, ones that were, were your greatest moments, ones which were your scariest, your most challenging, but please well, uh, share, share some of those oh, with us. Well, because of what you said, I'm prompted to say that uh, there was a gentleman that we called Woody, I'll just say, 
And uh, he was someone that I was introduced to by uh, one of the Gokots who's uh, recently passed named Samuel Law. And uh, because they were inseparable. Uh, he was an elderly white man, uh, Sam African-American. Uh, they come from different walks in life. And, but they shared the same soul. And one day, Sam could not, uh, and this is when I was newly uh, hired, if you will, as a go court, uh, brought on to, to, to be a part of this team. And, but Sam knew when he says, hey, man, uh, I have to go to, the, to uh, see my lawyer right now. This individual is scheduled to, <laughs> um, uh, he had to go, I think it was something to do medically. I had to take him to the medical department. It's been so long, I don't really remember that aspect of it, but I'm pretty sure that's, that's pretty accurate. And uh, and so Sam is looking at me very intently, like, very, listen, uh, you know, I've talked to him. I, I've talked to him about who you are, you know, and how special you are and how he can trust you. And um, would you please escort him, you know, to the medical facility? And I could see them both looking at me. They had the same look. And, and Mr. Woody, he, he uh, you know, I could see that doubt. It's like, oh, my God, the person who I most trust <laughs> is, is getting ready to go. And I don't know this guy. Right. And uh, well, anyway, um, we had a good experience. Uh, so I won't delve there. What I will say is that, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Woody had to be placed on hospice. Mm. He was somebody that was on a quad called Delta Quad. That quad was primarily with people that were DDPs, uh, disabled uh, uh, veterans, uh, EOPs, uh, enhanced outcast, um, excuse me, enhanced outpatient, uh, part of the enhanced outpatient program. Uh, and he was one of those people that, um, that, that, um, because he was on that quad, we already had a familiarity. So when it came time to picking a team, a hospice team that would visit him and, you know, uh, on a timely basis around the clock until uh, that final moment, uh, I was a part of that. And so just jumping right to the experience, uh, he was in what's the equivalent of ICU okay. uh, in, in prison. And uh, so they have him in this room where he can be monitored and there's a lot of glass windows so he can be seen so that if someone walking by and they just see something or notice something aloof, they can go right there and immediately he can get immediate attention. Well, I was sitting with him and uh, unknown to me, he had a visitor that day. It was his wife. And uh, so um, I guess well, what had happened is she had been there to come visit. I didn't know he was having a visit. So she was observing um, at that moment. I just so happened to be just dapping his brow, um, reading his Bible to him. I placed all type of pictures on tape around him of things he could see, of familiarity experiences he shared with his children and those whom he loved and he was close with. And times when he danced with his wife because apparently they used to uh, go to like it looked like a country setting and they had cowboy hats and boots and everything like that <laughs> and they would they would dance and I, I guess they were very good something they did as a couple and uh she just observed um the care that he was getting and uh so um the officer came in and said hey um he has a visit you have to leave 
And I, and I was like, so apologetic. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know. I mean, he goes, oh, no problem. I said, she's been here for about a half hour. She just waited <laughs> because of um, the care that you've seen. And she came in and she said some words to me that were so uplifting, that were so inspiring, that were so appreciative to where it caused me to cry. And, and I looked away in shame because I thought, in my mind, I was thinking about all the things I was there for, all the things I've done. I knew all the things I accomplished. And, 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 I, and I knew that I had a lot to be proud of. But, you know, I'm still a human being. Sure. And she, I never forget, she put her hand under my chin and she lifted my head up. And she said some very amazing, positive things, again, because of what she observed. And that experience... Uh, is is heartfelt to this day um because that's when i really knew for sure that i had arrived mm -hmm. and that uh i had arrived truly you know uh and 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 that experience uh has always guided me to wanting to be a better man beautiful beautiful and, and you know you um just thinking about that, you know, you, you, you brought in not, obviously not just the, uh, your experience in that particular case as the caregiver of this individual, but also as mentioned the wife. Um, and again, Aileen, you can jump in here. You can, you can tag team on this one. Um, when it comes to some of these really complex cases, especially when we're talking about things like dementia, obviously, um, again, Outside of the correctional system, there's a very big, obviously, personal component, but then the family uh, has, has a major part of uh, of the care, of, uh, of obviously, the, the grief and the stress and everything that comes with it. Talk a little bit about um, the family, a little more about the families, and, and ultimately, you know, you talk a little bit about this in the book as well, um, family perspective on how... They look at this uh, in terms of uh, loved one, not just incarcerated, but also suffering from cancer, dementia, what have you, terminal case. Talk a little bit some of the, more about the family experience. I think that's, it's, it's, uh, you're just talking there, Barry, an extremely important piece of this that we need to emphasize. Well, before Eileen deals with that, let me set it up by saying this. Sure. Um, oftentimes in these experiences, people still see the matriarch or the patriarch or the family in the same light. So in other words, if you were the person that was the breadwinner, you were the person people turned to for trust, for safety, uh, for guidance or for, for finance, people still saw their loved one in that same capacity, even though you could tell them, hey, listen, this is what dementia is. This is how, you know, how plaque grows on the brain. This is mm -hmm. you can give analogies using a short and a fan. And, and, you know, you could do all these things to educate but you have to educate through all those years yep. of how they seen and believe an individual to be. And it's amazing the things that the human being holds on to. That first impression that a daughter has with her father or with her mother or a son has with her father or mother and other uh, relatives, right? And so... I have to start there because that's a huge dynamic in that when people come to visit, you can tell by the questions that they have before the compassion, they're still wrestling with why isn't this person responding the way they've always responded, even though you've just told them. So I have to start there because, and then 
this person's older, so they don't hear this the same way they did, right? They don't see the same way they did, right? That's why we use the word cognitive. They just don't, they don't feel. So, so people will be talking to someone and they're not looking in the eye. They're not sitting in front of them. They're not asking permission. And so sometimes a lot gets lost and, and it can sometimes lead to some type of disconnection. Mm-hmm. And as a GOKO, you are there to remind people of their power, right? To remind them that they can uh, uh, change the experience for the better, right? And uh, these are, and so you end up being almost like an instructor or teacher, just like things were instructed and taught to you. So that that information becomes more powerful than their doubt, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's so difficult with the really the aging process. Um, at one of the, excuse me, one of the entry homes, um, I was told there was a gentleman, elderly gentleman who got out probably in his late 70s, early 80s. Um, and the family said, yes, we want to take care of him. He was not quite hospice, but would be getting there soon. And so he had to do six months at the reentry home. That's just the policy. And so the daughter came to pick him up, brought him home. And two weeks later, she brought him back. She said, I can't care for him. Right? Crying. But she said, I can't. I have to work. He doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. And that was just so heartbreaking because the intention is there, right, to help. I want to reconnect. But so much time had gone by. Um, and, you know, on a different note, you know, I'm right now I'm teaching re-entry parenting to men and women who have been disconnected with their kids and to reunite them. And I bring this up because Barry, that disconnect, right? I'm not the same person that I was, right? Going in, I lived in a different world, right? They lived in different worlds and they're trying to reconnect. So it's really difficult, I think, for the family both both sides, right? The mentally, you know, socially, how how is this going to work? And I think that's a, a huge issue. Um, I really really brought up a good point about um, transitioning, right? Yep. The family also has to learn to accept. Okay, you know, dad is coming home, mom is coming home. Maybe with dementia, you know, what are we going to do? Right? Mm-hmm. How are we going mm-hmm. to care? Let alone, right? Um, those who who have already been incarcerated become very close to people like the gold coats because they've cared for them, they're comfortable. And like um, Barry said, right, Sam was so close to Woody, like like family. So they become family. Um, I believe, right, Barry, that you do become family to many of them. Yes. Uh, In that case, when I was explaining about Woody, uh, you know, we are preparing them from sunup to sundown. And we're doing it in a secure setting where there's even compassion amongst staff because they're able to see, wow, this person is really there. Mm -hmm. We're like, they would 
I had access that other inmates didn't have. So sometimes my door would be open sometimes because some, there might be a situation problem that happens at 12 o'clock at night. And the guard is like, man, I cannot deal with this. <laughs> I don't know what to do. And then they, and, and then they think about, Oh, I seen him with this guy, <laughs> you know, uh, let me, they might not even know my name, but they know I've seen him with this guy when I was working the tower and a problem happened. I seen that he dealt with that pretty good. So they go get you. And, and oftentimes, uh, um, I mean, it, it's a better experience. And people calm him down. Probably. Calm down and under control and and back in their bed. And then we're able to reassess in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or later on that morning. <laughs> and um, so, uh, I mean, this is just another example of just like the daily operations that go on. I mean, uh, life doesn't ask permission right these things yeah. happen around the clock all the time just like other calamities throughout the world and we have to find ways to dig in and see our true metal right our resilience our staying power and 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 see it through absolutely um you know, barry you you know you're doing great stuff now at the at, at the va um Talk a little bit, you know, a little bit more about what you're up to now. But at the same time, does the uh, the men's comedy of the the San, the San Luis Obispo call you now and then to come in and train other? I mean, how are you, how are you still involved at this point? Do they, you know, are you called in as the expert on on certain topics to lecture on still? Well, talk a little about still the connection. Obviously, what you're doing now, but also. Um, well, a lot of that, I must be honest, uh, a lot of that uh, has come about through Eileen okay. and also our, our, our connections because uh, we've had two symposiums since awesome. I've been out. Um, and the first uh, at USC, I, they were both there, but the first at USC was um, uh, something that were, uh, we were able to get uh, recreational therapists, uh, uh, psychiatrists and, uh, from uh from uh, California Men's Facility uh, mm -hmm. to come down to be a part of, as well as other uh, educators in, in the uh, social worker field um, who uh, have asked people like myself to come speak in their classes, mm -hmm. right, and things like that. So all these different things like this have, and then knowledge that I, you know, I've always been a person who seek knowledge. So mm -hmm. I was a person that like, you know, while I was incarcerated, I was just an advent of NPR, you know, Amy Goodman, oh my goodness, mm -hmm. you know, people that she would have on there that she would feature and it would just broaden my perspective. And then there was people coming in who were educating and teaching and, and supporting all these different programs. And so when I derived to where I'm at now, and I could see how all these uh, tools, if you will, and experiences equipped me for what I'm doing now. You know, working for severely uh, mentally ill, uh, right now, to answer your question, what I'm doing is I'm part, I'm with, I'm associated with two doctors, uh, three educators from, uh, who have serious titles from UCLA, and we're creating a humanism pocket tool Okay. Uh, we created a vignette in which that we're trying to assist providers in being more humanistic 
when they're dealing with their clients, especially when they have those that um, can be very disruptive because uh, they come around, you know, uh, along. And like I said before, it could be a situation where someone just called in and they're trying to reach their provider, but the person that they're talking to doesn't really understand how this pain is causing these other multitudes of things mm -hmm. and how this pain is, is, is being further driven by a factor dealing with uh, the fact that they just had a bad conversation with their daughter. Mm -hmm. You understand? So yep. it's like it's like they really wish they'd done something better here, but because they're concentrated on their pain, they didn't give their best self in that experience. So they're holding on to that guilt. And then here's somebody that they're talking to on the phone because they're trying to deal with the pain and someone's denying them opiates, right? Because this person has a history of addiction, mm -hmm. right? These are real things and sure. how to work your way through these problems and listen to hear, right? So um, we, we've created this tool. We, we're, we're trying to uh, uh, get it in the form of an app so that someone will be able to use it anytime. We're also trying to use it as a training tool for those uh, in our fields, mm -hmm. our specific fields. Uh, and uh, so that's what I'm involved in now. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, Aileen, I, you mentioned some of the uh, the work you were doing. I mentioned the in the bio, you still work with um, uh, some of the different county jails and, and uh, in terms of life skill instructions and, and so forth. Um, talk a little bit about what else you got going on. And then also, you know, obviously, you know, I mentioned the getting sort of the numbers um, of, of correctional facilities in the United States. What's the current state? And of course, Barry, chime in here as well um, of getting this program national. I mean, are there other pockets of of this amazing type of program that you see gestating uh, in the United States currently? And if not, how can we get the word out there? But it's just a great story. You know, I, I think it's it's just a slow moving wheel. Right. Okay. But compared to maybe a decade ago or a couple of decades ago, at least there's a little bit of a movement toward reform and a little bit of movement toward getting the elderly out. Yeah. Um, I am also, yes, I am um, currently working with the reentry population, but I'm also, um, I have my foot in the door with the elderly. So I'm working with the local Alzheimer's Association and um we're trying to do a state, I should say statewide Alzheimer's awareness. Okay. And we're going to target maybe three prisons in California okay. um, to do a, a walk, right? They can walk in the yard at the same time the national Alzheimer's is doing the walk in October. So it'd be an awareness for, kind of an awareness campaign about Alzheimer's inside. Right, so early onset Alzheimer's. Well, let's get this person treatment or you know, get him in the right facility versus putting him in the shoe, right? Maybe he had an outburst or maybe he got lost, he got, starts wandering. Instead of punishing him, let's get him a diagnosis, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that type of awareness, um, we just started the conversations with the Alzheimer's Association and actually Barry with the Central Cal um, Alzheimer's Association they're very interested because they, they were uh, instrumental in helping the original Gold Coats. Okay. So we're going to try to get uh, statewide in terms of 
awareness, right? Look for the signs. These are the signs. This is not insubordination. This could be early, you know, onset dementia. But the walk itself, we're aiming for October when the national has their walk. Hey, we have three huge yards in California that are also going to be walking for Alzheimer's. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at right now. Excellent. Really, really excellent stuff. And I just, you know, thinking, you know, we, we touch on the topic of, of Alzheimer's dementia a lot on the show, and it is such a, uh, you know, it's constantly referred to as the tsunami that's coming, and, and, and we need to have all the tools available. And it really seems that uh, what you've put together here, what you've learned over the last uh, couple of decades with this program is just, you know, it really, it really adds an important uh, component to sort of increasing our understanding uh, of different ways to address uh, this, this, these dreaded conditions. And it's just, it's fascinating. It has been fascinating listening to both of you uh, tell the stories, uh, really uh, rooting you on for both of what you're, you're involved in now and to continue uh, raising awareness and, and moving these programs forward um, for, for everybody that uh, is going to be listening to this episode uh, across our podcast or watching uh, on the YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to Aileen Hungo and Barry Hughes, uh, both authors of the book, The Gold Coats, An Exceptional Standard of Care, a Collaborative Guide to Caring for the Cognitively Impaired Behind Bars, available on uh, Amazon and a variety of other sources. Um, Aileen, Barry, I want to thank you both for taking the time out of your schedule on the weekend to talk to us for a little while about what you've been involved in. Obviously, thank you for everything everything you've been doing there. And as we like to say on this show, uh, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through what you've done and what you've been creating. It's a really a fascinating story. And thank you both for your time. Thanks, Ira. Thank you as well, sir.